You're listening to the Village Church Podcast Show. All right, Pastor Mark here. Uh, we are doing a little, something a little bit different today. Usually I host the show and uh, interview other people. And today we're going to turn the tables and we're going to have Pastor Jeremy, one of the pastors at Village Church, interview me because recently I released a book, uh, an online ebook called Radical Sex that uh, that really explores the myths that we believe as a culture around sexuality and kind of gives a, a whole uh, biblical perspective on sex and sexuality. And uh, and so we released that recently and so wanted to do a show uh, where uh, somebody interviewed me and really gave you as the listener um, a voice to kind of interact with me around the material that you might have read or didn't read. If you're interested to read the book, uh, you can get uh, on pastormarkclark.com. Uh, go onto that website and it'll give you the opportunity to give your email address and then the ebook will be sent right to you. But welcome, Jeremy. Uh, hey. Yeah, and uh, I want to turn the tables and give you the opportunity to ask me whatever you think the listener, uh, once they've read this book, what are the things that pop up in this book um, that you think they're going to be asking and, uh, and and really give an opportunity for me to unpack it or clarify or, or whatever it is. So thanks for doing this. Yeah, no problem. This will be, uh, be fun, hopefully. Uh, <laughs> I did read the book. Oh, good. Um, it was free. In case people don't realize that, the price it's free. is right. You go right on the website, right. That's and good. that's it. Yeah. You can just have it. So I did read through it, cool. and uh, I thought it was great. Actually, well, thank you. Yeah. Um, I think there's stuff in there that is really original. Uh, yeah. I think it's not just what people might think. Oh, here's another Christian book on relationships or something, right. and they're gonna, you know, dismiss it or whatever. I would encourage people to actually go and find it and read through it because it'll surprise you. There's there's stuff that's talked about that doesn't get talked about a lot. Right. And yeah. uh, there are certain things that you talk about, like the way you talk about them and the way you pull certain concepts together that I think is very original. Cool. And it's really applicable. Um, so if people, if people are interested in figuring out how to engage in this as a Christian mm-hmm. uh, in today's world, mm-hmm. or if they are wondering about Christian beliefs and they think it's all weird and strange and right. brutish on this issue or something... Yeah. Yeah. I, this is a great book to read because it gives you a very different perspective. Right. So yeah. all that said, yeah. for you, yeah. why this book? So why would you right now yeah. release an ebook on this topic out of everything you could write on? Yeah. How come this? Um, because uh, I, in marriage counseling that I do, which I've been doing for, uh, for a lot of years, and in working with people uh, in the church for years and years and years, and having so many conversations uh, with couples who are either going to get married or are married, um, I find that this issue, uh, you know, we see the decline of marriage everywhere, right? We see uh, so many people, not just straight up divorce, that's an extreme example, but just people who are still married, but they're really struggling in their marriage. And what I have found over and over and over again, and I tell some of these stories in the book, is that um, oftentimes a lot of these problems in their marriages come back to this question of sexual intimacy um, and uh, whether they have a healthy sex life, uh, whether they're connecting physically or not, um, how often, uh, how good is it, right? And so you have all of these massive questions that as I'm sitting there doing marriage counseling or or just hanging out with couples, I find um, 
I find are an issue. They're, they're, they're actually um, tied to the unhealthiness uh, in their relationship. And, and then it connects down to conflict right. and, and money and, and, and communication and all these other pieces. They're all kind of connected in this ecosystem. And so oftentimes I'll be sitting with a couple and I'll hone in on, uh, on the question of their sexuality. And, right. uh, and I find that things aren't as healthy as they could be. But the interesting thing is, and this is something I wanted to, 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 why I wanted the conversation to start, not only in the culture around one or two particular issues, but in the church, is because um, couples aren't talking about it. Right. They're not talking about it with other couples. Uh, oftentimes we, in regard to our sexuality, are living pretty, um, pretty isolated. Uh, we're afraid to sit with, so we're hanging out with other couples. We're not, the women aren't going off necessarily. I mean, some of them do, they go off in the kitchen and they say, Hey, how's your sex? life?" And the guys, you know, they'll talk, may, maybe hint at it in the golf course, but it was pretty private. Um, and I find that, you know, there's this amazing ethic in Christianity where we're a community, uh, but we take certain things and we, I said, we hide them. Uh, we don't do community with them. We don't bring them into a communal context, which I have found in this context actually helpful because in talking about this stuff, there's a lot of things people don't know, a lot of expectations um, that that need to be talked about. And once the couples start talking about them and hear, hey, actually other couples do this and other couples have dealt with it, then it's like, oh, wait, what? So um, I think it's a really important issue because it, it it's connected like an ecosystem to so many other parts of our marriage and our relationships. Right. No, that's great. And I know that you do class mm -hmm. that probably even made this more front of mind for you where you take young married couples yes and you kind of blow them up over this whole issue right over a couple of weeks so talk, yeah. talk a little bit about that and what yeah. you're finding in that kind of class yes yeah. so um, my wife Erin and I um, found that through all our premarital counseling we were doing and a bunch of marriage counseling um we found that uh, this issue, uh, uh, you know, there's certain issues in marriages that you got to hone in on conflict, communication, money, and sex. And so, um, when we talked about this, so what we did is we decided we, we kept meeting with all these couples that had been married for three or four years and they were extremely frustrated. So one thing we got to understand part of the myth is, well, after years and years and years, you know, a sex life gets boring and and, and couples are, you know, struggle after years, but those first years, boy, those are awesome. We're like having sex like rabbits and everything's a honeymoon, you know, all that stuff. That's not actually true. What we started finding was couples who were married nine months, a year, three years, they're coming to us going, our sex life sucks and our communication life sucks and the conflict. We don't, we don't connect well. We had all these massive expectations. And one of the biggest uh, things that affect marriages is unfulfilled expectations. Um, this is one of the biggest issues in relationship to sexuality. There's all of these visions of grandeur that we get because we live in a very hyper-sexualized, over-sexualized culture. Then we enter and we think our sex life's gonna be this. So when I'm doing premarital counseling, for instance, I'll sit with a couple and I'll say, okay, sexual expectations. How, how many times a week do you guys think you're going to have sex? So these are two Christians. Right. Yep. Um, and usually they say to me, you know, probably five, six, seven times a week. That's what they say. And they both stare at me with, you know, as if that's a, you know, hey, that's conservative. We'll be conservative, honey. <laughs> um, maybe seven, eight times a week. And, and I, I kind of do what you just did. I laugh uh, respectfully because it ain't going to be like that. And so I need to work with them around these expectations and say, what's actually a healthy goal so you don't have these massive, you know, uh, unfulfilled expectations. So in this class, my wife and I spend a week and we talk about sexuality 
proper expectations, uh, what a healthy sex life should look like in regard to frequency, uh, the woman sexually, the man sexually. And then we separate out and my wife takes the women in a room and I take the guys in a room and we go kind of deeper down into some women, man issues, um, stuff that is you know, probably uncomfortable to talk to the men about with the women. You know, it's fascinating. Um, you talk to men in a room and, uh, and, and it, the, the, you, you, there's one dynamic. If you stick one woman in that room, the dynamic of the room completely changes. So you've got to isolate, you know, it's the same with women. So you've got to isolate and, uh, and that's what we do. And so we talk about, uh, in this class, we, we delve into these issues. Now, the other thing, and I talk about this in the book too, in this class that we teach, um, we do, um, a, uh, a test that every couple, every person in the class has to take a survey online and it goes through uh, a series of about 30 or 40 questions and ask them about everything from money to conflict to communication. There's this whole section on sex and we ask them these really kind of deep sexual questions. Mm -hmm. And then we're able to work with real time data, real stats in the room where we look out and we say X amount of you this, X amount of you that in regard to sexuality in this room, not like culturally or, you know. Yeah, and you feel what, that helps like with them engaging in it to say, yeah. okay, this isn't just some stat. He's Gallup making up poll. something. Yeah. yeah, this is you the guys. The guy beside me yeah. is doing this this many right, times. Right, yeah, yeah, month, yeah, blank. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes, uh, that's right. right. So it's real-time data. It's very helpful for them because it's very real. It's not some people out there on the street. It's like, you know, so we ask questions um, and, I, and I do a whole section uh, in the book on uh, orgasms. Um, a whole, a whole section of frequency. And so we get into those questions and we say, what is this experience like for you guys and how do we talk to it? So, right. yeah. Okay. So we'll get to some of those specifics okay. in a bit. Yep. I want to get at as well, um, as we're kind of setting this up is when I, when I was reading the book, it seemed to me at least in, in the first bit that what you're actually doing was almost providing an apologetic for how, um, Christianity deals with sex, uh, right. at least the misconceptions mm -hmm. that could be out there in the world mm -hmm. or in the church. And it was almost like you were saying, hey, um, kind of forget everything. This is really mm -hmm. uh, what the Bible says about sexuality and sex, yeah. and let's set the record straight. So is that was that a bit of behind this? And if that's the case, what do you think are some of the big misconceptions that people outside the church or inside the church have about what the Bible teaches yeah. on sexuality? Yeah. Um, yeah. The first half is, <clears throat> or the first uh, chapter or two is a bit of a kind of an apologetic bent. And what, a, what we mean by apologetic is a defense, mm -hmm. um, not an apology, but a defense of, and, and what that was doing was basically uh, posturing the beginning of the book as um, there's a whole bunch of people that I know growing up as a non-Christian and a bunch of philosophers I read who reject Christianity, um, not based on some massive um, philosophical reason, like, oh, I don't believe that there's proof for the existence of God or the existence of evil and suffering. It's not that. It's that they reject Christianity based on if that's what you believe about sex, I don't want to be a Christian. Mm. There's a massive amount of people in our culture that are like that, whether it's because it's going to affect my behavior. I can't sleep with whomever I want. Or it's like, oh, you believe that thing about, you know, some cultural thing that we get really excited about. And it's like, well, we have to believe this and you have to believe that. And there has to be complete tolerance. And, and so I'm not going to believe Christianity based on all this. And part of that is, uh, 
this view that Christianity is very uh, prudish or kind of uh, down on sexuality, like uber conservative on sexuality. And so the Bible must, God must be anti-sex. The Bible must not really promote sex. Uh, It's kind of like, you know, there's myth. Like when I was growing up, I thought Christians believe that you basically had sex for procreation. Right. You just have sex, have a couple kids, and you're done. Um, and so I was like, as a kid, I'm like, well, that's the furthest thing I want from reality, right? <laughs> I got, you know, I'm, I'm hearing that the Catholic Church, you know, loves Mary because she was a virgin. That's the opposite of what I wanted to be right. at that point. So I, I want to get it far away from any kind of that as I can. Um, and then I started actually reading the Bible for myself. And as I talk about in the book, I saw this robust, beautiful sometimes a provocative, uh, almost erotic picture of what sexuality should be and could be in the proper context of marriage between a man and a woman. And it was this song of Solomon, like you can touch her breasts and she will, your young <laughs> wife will make you happy and like a deer and the, you know, and you need to, uh, drink and eat of one another, you know, all this crazy imagery is like you climb the tree and take a hold of the, you know, it's like, oh my goodness, the Bible was is, has this beautiful, positive, I want you guys connecting. Uh, and then I, I saw uh, the frequency and uh, this, this you know, 1 Corinthians 7 about Paul saying, uh, you know, it's not about having sex just for procreation. It's about, it's about this frequency. He calls it conjugal rights, right. that yeah. you actually give your husband or your wife conjugal rights. Uh, and don't, don't, and he actually says this, don't, um, not do it for too long because right, then Satan yeah. will have his way yeah. and actually come in and create a temptation for you if you're not connecting um, f- frequently enough, which is, um, you know, just you just study nature and you I just, there has to be a frequency in the context of sexuality um, or else what happens is, and I can tell you from years of counseling and years of just conversation, straight up, raw, real conversations with men that I know that um, if they're not having sex on a consistent, frequent basis, they are tempted to find that fulfillment in other things, whether it is pornography, habitual masturbation, uh, other women. Um, And so there's this this biblical, I mean, it's straight up what Paul said 2,000 years ago. He said, if you don't Make sure that you're giving each other your conjugal rights. You will be tempted in these other ways. So make sure that if you haven't come together for a bit, make sure you could come back together. So, um, so I saw that and I was like, man, this isn't some backwater denim dress from your neck to your floor. This is like this, a like there's this poet, you know? And so I started kind of going, okay, the problem is not that the Bible doesn't teach this. It's that we think the Bible teaches something that it doesn't. And if people actually read the Bible for themselves, they would see this beautiful, robust, full picture of sexuality. So, so what happened then in, in transmission? Like, like the Bible clearly talks about all this stuff. Yeah. The apostle Paul writes about all this stuff. Yeah. Somehow though, we get to a point now where, that's just not the view. Like, like yeah. people just don't think that's what Christianity thinks about this right. stuff. Right. And, and we even talk, I think in the book, you maybe even mentioned about you know, how even translators yeah. through history have sometimes struggled sure. not wanting to write quite as erotically as the Hebrew or right. as the, you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 because, because totally, yeah. well, it's, this is yeah, the Bible. Yeah, Let's right, not. Right. So, so why is that? Do you think that there's something in there where as human beings, we say, 
well, this is this is God domain stuff. Let's mm-hmm. not let let's tone it down. Right. Why why is that? I think because we live in such a hypersexualized, oversexualized culture that that we're trying to navigate when it becomes when's the line get pushed where we become salacious or we become um, we become like the culture too much. So we're so sensitive to it. Like, and I understand that. So for instance, um, I might be, you know, you might be out there and be someone who watches movies and, uh, and you can kind of handle swearing or something, right? It's like, well, we know if we're going to go watch a movie, there's going to be swearing. But then when nudity happens, something, it's kind of feels like the bar gets raised. I was like, okay, now, there's something here going on that maybe is inappropriate and right. we shouldn't, right? It's like immediate. It's like, because that turns immediately to lust, I'm looking at a naked man, now I'm thinking this, whereas a swear word doesn't do that. So we've kind of got the soul connection to sexuality in, I think at a different level. I think the Bible talks about this. Paul talks about this, but when you join to a prostitute, it's not just a physical act. There's a spiritual union that I, something spiritual takes place in sexuality. Um, and so I think that we're we're trying to figure that out. We're trying to go how do we how do we talk about sexuality in such a way that we look to the culture and go look you don't have to abandon this is going to be awesome this is going to be the most robust the most beautiful in the context of marriage it's going to be the best um, and so uh, but at the same time um, not being so flippant and loose with it that we just end up sounding like Playboy magazine sure and you think that's why maybe. Like churches don't Which talk about Which is why about people read Playbook. Right. They read Playbook for the articles. Right, of course. Right. Well, obviously. So do you think, though, in your mind, like this is part of why maybe churches don't engage in this well um, because there's this fear of we we got to be separate. We got to separate ourselves yes, out. Yeah, we're, which is legitimate. Or maybe as pastors, we're worried about if someone goes and takes what we're saying a little bit the other way, yes. that's worse than if they just wear head-to-toe denim dresses. Right. Yeah, yeah. Time. Is that- I think so. I think we, we t- yeah, we would rather be on that kind of conservative side of not saying much uh, and and just hoping that people understand. And th- this is the frustration, right? And this is why I opened the book with what I call the condom incident where I'm in a church and I drop condoms all over the floor and the, the pastors bring me into the office and they don't give me a great ethic of sexuality to look forward to as a 19-year-old bursting with hormones. They just say, here's what sex isn't. Stay away from my, you know, stay away from the girls. And so there's this, there's this overcorrection of don't, 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 don't versus, but here's, here's a really beautiful, healthy ethic and what it should look and like. Talked, and so, and yeah. you talk about in the book, the whole sex is bad. Yeah, sex is bad. Yeah, that's the first God, the the first myth um, that the book deals with is, yeah. But you argue basically that there's just as much danger in that than there is really in... in, in going the other way in a sense that at, at times I think of danger the other way. Yeah. I think, I think, um, there can be just as much danger because then you get, and the beautiful thing about this, as I talk about is that the church throughout history, um, has often, uh, there's a, there's a report of the Puritans actually doing church discipline on a guy. And what I say is that, um, that the problem in the church often is that there's trouble for going too far 
adultery, pornography, but there's rarely any trouble for not going far enough, meaning in the context of marriage, you're connecting three times a year and no one's calling you out on that mm. as unbiblical. It's actually unbiblical right. Right. to not connect with your spouse on a consistent, frequent basis. So, so there's that, you know, story that I tell about the Puritans who they found out a guy hadn't slept with his wife in two years and actually did church discipline on him, Crazy. you know? So that's, we're going to instill that in village church soon <laughs> and start doing, you know, so there's uh I think I think you're right. I think they're. I don't know if it's. I don't know if it's as big a danger because the the bigger danger on the other side is is the mental strain of lust and and, and pornography and all these other things. Um, so I don't know if it's as big a danger, but it can have pretty perverse effects on someone, especially if they come from a sex is bad culture. Um, then they grow up, as I've talked with many couples, uh, women in particular, who get told it's bad. Then they get married. Then all of a sudden they're supposed to be, you know, Miss Erotica. Totally, yeah. And uh, it actually has such mental strain on them that they'll go another year or two without having sex because the trauma. It's actually traumatic for these women. And that's unfortunate, you know. So let's, uh, yeah. let's get into that a little bit. So one of the things you bring up in the book is that there's a difference in perspective when it comes to sex. In your experience mm -hmm. with uh, men and women... Mm -hmm. And that you were once actually working with a couple where you say that the woman didn't actually know how many times they had had sex in the last month or year yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. And the husband was like, boom, I know exactly. I can yeah. tell you exactly. And yes. I could probably recount the details of right. every, the dates, every one. The room we were in. So why is that? Why is it that there, in your experience, that there's yeah. this there's this difference? What is it that's happened in church where where the women in church, mm -hmm. in your experience at least, are coming in with this very very different perspective on sex than yeah. a lot of the men? Um, I don't know if it is uh, limited to the church or whether it's male. A lot of it might be male and female, a little bit, based around uh, probably. I mean, I'm not a doctor but some physiological needs. The, you know, one, one example that I give in the book uh, is about shaving and how, you know, if you take the analogy of shaving, that women, you know, generally might shave once a week in the off season, maybe a little less because they got pants on and, uh, and maybe once every couple of weeks, you know, whatever. But a man, if he wants to be clean shaven, has to shave every day. Right. And that there's this analogy to sexual drive and it's not 100% across the board, but generally speaking. Um, and so, uh, when I sit with couples and look and I say to the wife, as I did in the case that you're talking about, and I said, how many times, and they were talking about other things, right? They're talking about conflict, communication, money. And I just stopped the conversation. I said, let's talk about sex because I actually think in the ecosystem of your relationship that this is actually an issue. I'm sensing it is. So I said, how many times are you having sex? She said, we're having sex once a week. And I looked at him and I said, how many times are you having sex? He said, once a month. And the reason I'll probably go, he knows, man. He is very aware because he's wanting it every couple of days. I mean, you know, he wants whereas she could probably, I got kids, I got, I got work, I got things going on. Like the, the mental, the mental game is different. For, I mean, I know this blows people's minds, but males and females are different. <laughs> they, they're wired different. They think different. And as I talk about in the book, um, you know, Lu, uh, Luann Brizendine talks about in her female brain how a female orgasm 
is connected to the ability to actually turn a woman's brain off, meaning bring down her stress levels, uh, make sure the bills are paid, make sure things are happening around the house, make sure you do the emotion work as a husband, which will turn her on, whereas a husband can be driving in a car, kids could be screaming, throwing things at each other, and the husband's kind of like still in the mood almost, right. and the wife needs some other things to calm down yeah. before she can think of it. So, so that, I think it's just, there's some physiological gender stuff going on. You know, not, Again, not 100% of the time there's going to be cases where it's different, where the wife, and I've met with couples like this, where the wife is the one who always wants it. Every day she wants it, and he's just worn out. He's like, dude, I can't take any more of this. You know? <laughs> and then I'm talking to you know, a bunch of other guys who are like, can I trade? Right. You know? <laughs> so, um, so I really think, so, I, so in the book, I talk about uh, the question of frequency and, uh, and uh, what, is, uh, what is the proper amount of sex that couples should be having um, and, uh, and what is healthy. And what I have found was that oftentimes um, it's just the husband wants one thing, the wife is, is wanting something else, and there's no discussion. No one's talking about it. Everyone's just ignoring the issue. And so I can, I can pretty well say definitively that for every man almost that I've ever met, um, that 12 times a year is not enough. All right. Once a month is not enough. And so let's work together to figure out uh, how we can get healthy. So again, that Satan and, and temptation doesn't make its way into your marriage. Sure. Now, you talked about there for a second um, being in the mood mm-hmm. and this whole idea of we tend to associate um, having sex with our spouse as something that must be connected to everyone being in whatever this mood is right, that, right, that, right. We, that we dream up, he right? quotes. He did <laughs> little hand quotes. quotes. Yeah. <laughs> For those of you who can't see. For the see. audience at home. Yeah. Um, but you even talk a little bit about how maybe Hollywood's played into this a little yeah. bit and other, other factors where we're being shown this ideal of sex mm-hmm. in culture. And sure. it's kind of like, you know, those romantic comedy things or those yeah. sitcoms or whatever. And it's like this perfect scenario and he yeah. finally sees her for who she is. And, you know, and, and the, and the <laughs> birds are chirping right, and it's all right, great. Right, yeah. And this is now the moment of finally yeah. we're both at that place yeah. and we yeah. both, so now we'll enjoy this together. Yeah. And you kind of say in the book, okay, that's great. But, Biblically, right. that's not it. Right. Yeah. So, so talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I think that whole idea of the passionate, you know, of course we want to keep that alive, but um, the the problem with that is is that rarely are two people, a couple, in the mood at the exact same moment. Someone's gonna, you know, start. It takes work. It takes work. <laughs> um, and and secondly, that sex is actually a selfless versus a selfish act, and so. If the wife is in the mood and the husband isn't, what does it look like for the husband to selflessly go, she's in the mood, it's time that I start working at switching my mindset here because she has a need and she has a desire and I want to meet it. It might take 15 or 20 minutes to build up some kind of emotional connection or whatever, but I'm going to do that because sex is primarily selfless, Mm. not me trying to take it's me trying to give. And so that's the shift. If you start out with um, at every moment, it's got to be a massive, big, passionate fireworks. You come in the door, you're slamming each other up against the wall. It's raining on you. It's everything. Ah, you know, 
uh, when's that again happening? Like, <laughs> after the kids craft dinners out of my hair, and yeah. <laughs> so uh, there's this in the mood thing where we need to actually um, shift that a bit, and 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 also recognize that uh, it can go both ways, and 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 good sex takes work. And, uh, and that means emotional work, investment. So to, to clarify, though, you're not saying that sex should ever be something against someone's will. That's no, not no, at no, all no. what you're saying. No, no. Obviously. No, that would be a dangerous that interpretation. That is the yeah. wrong way. No. But what you're saying is when you flip the perspective where this is something where you give yeah. to the other person. Yeah. Um, and it's That's not the selfish. Biblical. Yeah. The biblical idea you're you're providing you're giving this to you're the giving person. It, giving it that, to them that yeah. changes that whole dynamic yeah. in your mind and and that's the biblical principle out of first corinthians where paul says uh when you marry uh, a woman your body uh, you don't have complete authority over your own body now she does has has shared authority over your body and so there's okay how can we and of course this is all orbiting around generally a healthy marriage i'm not talking about you know people who are completely disconnected and separated and got massive issues, you know, all of that's all nuanced in here where you got to work at all this. And that's why I'm talking about emotion work from both angles. The man has to invest emotionally. Um, and I talk in the book about statistics around that, that for a woman, actually uh, the contentment levels uh, statistically are higher, uh, a, a reporting of a, a higher levels of happiness around husbands who are invested in them emotionally, even more so than money and children give them satisfaction. And so, um, so if you're asking me about, you know, when we talk about, uh, you know, a complementarian view of the Bible where a man is supposed to have a leadership role in the home, even if that leadership role is 51, 49%, um, that I would say he needs to do that emotion work and, and pour into her spirit uh, before any kind of expectation around any kind of physical connection point. However, uh, as I meet with couples, uh, I, I find that they say that when they connect sexually, even if there wasn't an emotional, deep emotional connection building up toward it, that the sex actually helps them connect emotionally right. too. So it's it's not cut and dry. Sometimes the sex can actually lead to then sitting in bed for half an hour and connecting emotionally in a way that it wouldn't have because there were all these walls of other things going on, right? And so it's not always this kind of cut and dry thing. So. Or the idea of like even just if someone gives you a hug, it can actually have a profound impact on totally. your mood and your yep. emotions and yeah, everything absolutely. just out of the blue. Yep. Um, okay, let's get to a, a specific section of the book mm -hmm. that I think for readers, they will find probably the most surprising, perhaps okay. um, shocking, maybe oh, when they get to this section. Yeah. And that is you profess a love yes. for orgasms. Right. So there are probably <laughs> right. people listening to this yep. who haven't read the book or people who have, and they're listening because they're curious if we're going to talk about this. Yeah. Um, why don't you give us some context around what you mean when you say that you love orgasms? Why, why as a pastor, when right. you're writing this book, are you including this so explicitly in, in this piece? Yeah. I mean, people are going to listen and go, hang on, what is, this is the pastor of my church. Right. Why is... Um, yeah, this is one of the most practical parts of the book because um, as I meet with couples and uh, talk to more and more 
Um, I mean, I've been, I've been doing marriage counseling for 15 or 16 years in the context of ministry. And, uh, one of the practical realities that I see is that, um, men and women, uh, I mean, sexuality, God has given us sexuality to be enjoyed. That's the part of the point of the biblical picture. It's a pleasure. It's not just for procreation. It is for that. It's not just for protection. It is for that. It's not, you know, it's a pleasure. One of the things I bump into very practically is that people, the reason frequency is down, right? The reason people aren't having sex um, in um, an amount of time per week or per month that is they're both kind of happy with is partly because the enjoyment level oftentimes for the woman is down meaning they, a percentage. And I think I talk about uh, the last um, class that I did uh, where we talked to these couples who were married three years and under. Um, I t there was a percentage of women who simply had never experienced an orgasm or do not experience ongoing orgasms in their sex life. And so the reality is, is you have this percentage of people who you know, don't experience it, which is, it's, it's, I looked at it at this class and said, this is not ideal. Uh, you're wondering why your wife doesn't want sex as frequently as you um, because they don't enjoy it as much as you. <laughs> and so because they're not experiencing what I would argue God had intended uh, through certain anatomy in the female, uh, which doesn't have any reproductive value, to actually result in orgasm, which is this great kind of climactic vista experience for the woman. And so... Um, Part of my, I mean, I, I, and I talk about the story in the book, sitting with a couple um, and straight up asking them after three or four years of marriage, um, hey guys, do, looking at the woman and saying, do you, have, do you experience orgasm? And she says, no. I said, ever? She said, no. And I looked at him and I said, is that weird? And he said, no, I didn't think. And this is what both of them told me. And this has happened multiple times. Both of them said, I didn't think that, that, she was supposed to experience or that she could experience orgasm. I thought that would happen in four or five or six years, and, right. you know? And so it was this mind boggling moment. Uh, and it's happened multiple times where I've had to take the couple through the idea that, no, you know, that lots, most, uh, a lot of women, um, experience orgasm and have so since their honeymoon or shortly after, and it's, it's like a, a, almost every time they have sex or the major, high majority of time they have sex, they actually can experience, like you realize you've just kind of, a, you've just accepted mm -hmm. this mythology that you picked up somewhere that women aren't supposed to, or aren't, they can't, or, you know, whatever. Right. right? Yeah. So, uh, the chapter is all about exposing that myth and saying, we got to talk about orgasms here. Right. We got to, we have to, because there's women out there who aren't experienced this beautiful thing that God has given them. And it might simply be because they accepted a myth that isn't true and they haven't done. And what I describe in the book is done the work to figure out how they can experience an orgasm and then teach it to their husbands who, you know, this won't be news to anyone out there, but the female body and anatomy is a little <laughs> bit, uh, uh, complicated, uh, to a guy, a guy is, you know, lost, right? right? A little bit. So to be helped out and to be taught yes. by his wife is completely natural. And this is, right. this is what I'm saying as I meet with these couples, they've never had someone explain this to them, like figure out your own body. Um, there's some responsibility there on the woman's part and then teach it to your husband. Right. 
so that you guys can have a, a great, flourishing, robust sex life. This is what God wants for your marriage. What's happening is, um, is that these these people, these women aren't having orgasms. They're not talking about it with their friends. So they don't know that their girlfriend actually experiences orgasm every time she has sex or two or three times. They're not talking about it. They're not, they're hiding it um, because they're embarrassed or whatever. Maybe the sex hurts. It's painful for some women. There's some, there's some psychological or physiological issue going on um, and all stuff that needs to be talked about and can be dealt with. Like there, there's actually, you go to a doctor and get this stuff yep. solved. You can go to a counselor and work through this stuff so that sex can be a much better experience than it is. And so, um, so Aaron and I in these classes have a passion to take both side and talk about orgasms in the sense that she gets to talk to women and say, here's, here's how to figure out things. I talk to the guys about here's how to help. Here's how to learn. Yep. Here's what to do. Um, kind of get a whiteboard out and draw <laughs> things. And so do you think there's another case though, where, where we've kind of let culture mess us up a bit as guys, oh, like, completely. like guys, I think have this idea of they're expected to, you know, they, they're sitting at home playing video games all their life yeah. in high school. And then all of a sudden they're supposed to be amazing lovers. Right. Like they see it on TV or whatever. Totally. And it's like, well, okay, it looks I'm easy. Just, whatever I do is going to be amazing. Oh, sure. And I'll just do all the stuff I see this. on TV <laughs> yeah, or online totally. or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that'll well, be that, incredible for her and I'll never talk about it. Right. Uh, porn has completely derailed the, ma the, 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 the masculine mental uh, understanding of sexual. We think, uh, Hey, just have sex with her and yeah. she, dude, you'll kill it. Like she's going to be screaming because yeah. I saw Michael Douglas, you know, whatever, yeah. or random Joe on the porn on my thing. Yeah. And that's not how women orgasm. <laughs> so you realize those does, are actors. Yeah. Those like, are actors. Definition. Right. Those are not all very good ones, <laughs> but yes. So, uh, so, Guys are really now. Here's the amazing thing, and this is why this needs to be talked about. Guys are actually naive. Like every guy's gonna, every guy is gonna. Uh, uh, no guy would admit that he didn't know what we just said. Right. But they don't because I, I literally uh, a year ago, I just sat with a guy uh, recently. Um, they got married a little bit ago. I, I, I uh, a year ago, I was doing their marriage counseling after they'd been married, and uh, he goes, "Dude, I thought I was gonna." I thought I was going to be like the greatest lover. I thought she'd be orgasming every day. I looked at her and she goes, I don't think I've ever had one. She's like, oh. he has no idea what he's doing. Right. And it's kind of humbling, right? It's yeah. very, and he, yeah. you know, he's sitting there beside me lost, right. like help, like a puppy to help. Right. Whereas six months earlier, I'm doing their premarital and this guy's confident, bro. It's boom. This is going to be legit. We're going to, Six months later, he's sitting there like a puppy dog in my office going, I don't know how to make her orgasm. And I try this and I try that and I'm fumbling around. She tries to do this and she, he's, she's just like, he's useless. Right. And we have so Sexually. much access yeah. to sex everywhere. Media, if yeah. you want it, you can get everything. Yeah. Yeah. And so it just becomes this, I, I have to live up to some expectation that, you know, oh. all my buddies think they're oh. going to be amazing. All my whatever, everything I see on TV, yeah. everything I see. Of course, yeah. And so I don't want to be the guy that. Oh, you can't sit around with your buddies and go, dude, my wife does an orgasm. How about yours? Like, tips. Like, yeah, what my can wife I said better? I suck at sex. What You can't do it. And this is where, you know, come back to your first question. Why would I write a book on this? I have this pastoral concern and love for the church and the city and the world where I think uh, married couples can benefit from this conversation about whether it's um, frequency, 
or a robust vision of sexuality the Bible gives, which is radical and very subversive to the cultural norms, or orgasms, whatever it is, I think this stuff needs to be talked about in the church so that we can have better, flourishing, happy, joyous marriages and sexuality, which is what God wants, actually. You know, Piper has this great phrase, Christian hedonism. God wants us to have hedonistic joy, but to find it in him and his ways versus the ways of the world. And this is one of those ways. If we don't talk about it and it's all shut up and quiet and no one's, then it doesn't give the opportunity to make it better, which is the pastoral concern that I have. Okay. Well, let's shift into kind of the last sort of section here. Just maybe we'll talk about out of the book. And that is you do shift from sex as bad to the concept of sex as God. Yeah, a culture that worships sexuality. Right, yeah. and so you you use like on the one hand, this whole negative view of sex is is not good. Yeah, but then on 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 the opposite, this whole glorifying of it as the ultimate goal of mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. is is horrible too. Yeah. So just talk a little bit about, you know, why do we have that idea in our culture? Why where did this come from? Um, why is there this sex as God thing going on uh, think, all around us? Yeah, I think because all all gods, small g, everything that we worship as ultimate in life comes from kind of a natural pleasure passion. So power, money, sex, three of the biggest um, gods in our culture come from like, man, we get pleasure from having money. We get pleasure from power. We have pleasure from sex. So they become ultimate. They become things that we worship. And it's always been that way. Go back to, you know, you go and study all these like pagan religions throughout time. And these are the gods that they worship. Um, And so for us, it's become the God of our heart where it drives us. And so we, we say sex sells, right? So we put it on every billboard and every TV show, and that's what people will watch. And then we've made it ultimate. We've said, as a culture, uh, from you know the 40s and the 50s, in a psychology world where sex is the core piece of our identity. So it's not one part of the ecosystem. It is the center point of the ecosystem. That's what that's the shift that's been made. And once it's become the center point of your entire identity, then anybody questioning how you do it or what you do um, becomes the enemy of your identity. Uh, they're messing with your makeup as a human being. And, uh, you know, uh, th- th- there's these quotes that I talk about, whether it's um, Freud or uh, Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, where she literally saw sex as a religion. She saw it as if we're free and liberated to have sex with whomever we want, whenever we want, with whatever we want, that will be our spiritual liberation and enlightenment and peace will come to the earth, right? Like this is literally what we think. I mean, we don't say it like that, but that's what we begin to function like. And Christianity comes along and goes, no, you, no, no, you're centering yourself on the wrong thing. Yeah. And there's this whole myth of, you see it, you see it on TV, you see, you hear about it all the time, you know, it's almost like it's more evolved in our culture. Yeah. If you're more open, yeah. You know, say like open marriages and things like that. It's they people talk about it like, well, you're just you know you understand you're your sexuality better. Yeah, yeah. You're ahead of and us. So this, you guys, you're where we're all marriage. going. You're where we're all going. Yeah, right if, now, we're all stuck back here in the old traditional model yeah, where we got that one wife. Is like yeah. the ideal. That's the ideal. But you argue yeah. in the book, no, that's that totally misses. Yeah, that's a derailment. And when of, you get yeah. the ideal wrong, it screws everything up. Yeah. 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 There's a section of the book where I talk about, um, the idea that, um, there are, uh, there's like, again, this, this, uh, 
there's a worldview uh, and an ecosystem of stories and questions and symbols and, and praxis or the way that we function in the world. And if you mess up uh, either the stories that we tell or the questions that we ask or the symbols that we have in a culture. So for instance, in Judaism, there's like the temple of this, the, uh, there's the symbol of the temple and the temple had this significant place in their life. And if you messed with the symbol of the temple, it didn't just mess with the symbol of the temple. It messed with everything. Is God around anymore? What are we supposed to do with sacrifice? It messed with the meaning of life itself. Right. Um, in the same way, I talk about the fact that uh, the sexuality is the is the most powerful nonverbal signal or symbol that God has given us between man and woman. The context of marriage is unity, this one fleshness. As Paul talks about in Ephesians five, and and if we mess with that, then we don't only mess with with sex, we mess with the question of meaning itself, Me, the meaning of life. Uh, where, what are our origins? What are our debt? Where's our destiny? Uh, what are the questions we're at? What are the stories that we're telling? And you'll notice that if you look at sex as God cultures, uh, the questions they ask are different. The stories they tell are different. They're very praxis. Their way of being in the world is, is different. And I would argue has actually been derailed from God's intention. And so I think in the messing up of sex, uh, we've actually caused uh, a massive question around meaning and we don't know any, we're confused. We're so confused about the meaning of life, yeah. the meaning of God, the meaning of our own identities. Um, and that has a huge root in the fact that we messed up the symbol of sex. Right. And then you don't only talk about how it's messed us up individually, but it's actually messed us up culturally. Yeah. And there's this idea of you know, it's like the emperor's new clothes phenomenon. It's like we parade around as a culture saying mm -hmm. we're so progressive because we've become so liberated sexually. Yeah. We're figuring this out finally yeah, we've, as yep, people. Yep, yep. Aren't we amazing? Aren't Isn't, we amazing? Aren't, Let's aren't we celebrate our But we divert, completely yeah. ignore the damage it does culturally all around us in so many ways. Yeah, well, not only culture, but individually. We, I sit with people who are wrestling through massive issues of gender and identity. And we think as a culture, we pat ourselves on the back because we've liberated everybody. Everybody can sleep with whomever they want and do whatever they want. And we parade around and we say, we've done it. We've liberated people. And then I'm sitting with them and they're crying and they're suicidal and they're a mess because no one has helped them. We've just gone out and got uh, elected based running on a platform or we got some retweets because we're seen as the Messiah of culture and we're letting everyone get married and do whatever they want or whatever. And I still got this guy who's dealing with transgendered confusion sitting in the office saying, yeah, I'm liberated culture. Everyone's applauding me, but, but when the parade's over, no one's actually helping me. Right. No one's coming alongside of me going, okay, dude, what, what are you feeling? Um, that is the, the, the naivety of yeah. the situation we've got ourselves in. And it's a great place for the church to come alongside and play this great role in culture, um, where we actually come alongside instead of, instead of just applauding everything, um, actually getting into the nuance of people's lives and saying, yeah, we're not necessarily applauding everybody and their forms of sexuality. We actually think the only form of sexuality is a man and a woman in the context of marriage, but we're going to, we're going to journey with you where everyone else doesn't care. 
but right. they're not paying attention to you. Totally. So yeah. the church has a great uh, place to come alongside. And I think this is exactly what Jesus did. If you read, you know, John chapter eight, um, uh, the woman at the well and dealing with her, the culture, she wants to ask all these, you know, questions. Uh, he wants to get at her soul. He wants to talk about her as a person. He, he refuses to just treat her, um, as a, as a, let's talk about your sexual life and your identity and make that the controlling question, the, the controlling category of your life. He, he goes, no, it's one, your sexuality is one category of a larger person that I want to talk about. And so uh, I think that's the damaging road we are all going down and, and what sex as God cultures, uh, that's where they go. And ultimately it, it ends pretty empty. And they're so so quick to point the finger at the church and say, well, look at how backwards you are. You know, look at yeah. how archaic your views are. Yeah. But then they don't point the finger back at themselves as culture you know, to mm -hmm. say, well, hang on a sec. You talk about in the book, the porn industry is larger than all American sports combined. Yeah, it makes more money do people, annually. Do people actually realize how right. big that is? Think about how big the NFL is and yeah. baseball and basketball. Billions and billions of dollars the per year. The porn industry is bigger than all of that together. And that's with the fact that you can get porn for free. Yeah. And <laughs> So and aside it, from all the free porn. But this is an industry this that's is literally killing billions. people yeah. and ruining lives. Yeah. And so there's this view that as long as we progress and as long as we you know get away from that traditional past then we're going to come into our own and actually what's happening is as we come into our own uh, we're actually destroying ourselves not by pain but by our own pleasure mm. um not not at, from outside sources but from ourselves yeah. and what we love is killing us uh slowly yeah, yeah it's a very hypocritical stand that culture makes against the church on this issue because yeah, they say like we've been talking about all this stuff about we're so liberated versus you. Yeah. We're so progressive versus you. Yeah. We're so evolved. You guys are backwards. But like sex trafficking is this huge problem yeah. in the world because of this oversexed culture. You've actually talked in the book about how um, sex is so prevalent yeah. that it's killed the prostitution industry. Yeah, yeah. There's this, and this yeah. bizarre irony. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah one of the more uh, probably interesting parts of the book, maybe for for people who've read a lot of books on sex. There's a lot of practical stuff in the book to do with how to have better sex and so on. And but there's yeah this this one part uh, taken from uh, Stephen Dubner and Stephen Levitt's book Super Freakonomics, where they talk about the impact on the porn industry, because really the only uh, the only competition for a prostitute is someone who will have sex for free. And that's precisely the part of our culture that over the last hundred years has gone through the roof versus 70 years ago where they, and I talk, I share statistics about how many men born between 1930 and 1945 or whatever actually had their first sexual experience with a prostitute versus because a woman made you marry her. Right. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the word, the concept of casual sex didn't exist at the time. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, I think this is this is a symbol that we have so strained that um, it's going to hurt us in far other in far more areas uh, than than just sexuality. Yeah, I find it's interesting that we as Christians often will look at this sort of stuff and almost be ashamed of it. Yeah, 
and we don't want to bring it out to culture and our friends and our family and stuff because we, for some reason, uh, think it's it's worse than what's out there. But like you're saying, yeah, we should fundamentally believe what we have as Christians is better yeah, for the and, world. So and buy the, the book, get it, give it to your friends, read it, and then start talking about this stuff in a real way. Yeah, I, th- I think that oftentimes the the church is seen as not having a solution or a voice. I mean, you, you look at, uh, you know, people look in and, and if the church speaks about, you know, abortion or same-sex marriage, uh, they're looked at as, hey, we need to, you know, not let them in on the cultural conversation. But when the church starts talking about sex trafficking and poverty, we're seen as having a prophetic voice. Um, those, that's an irony. You need to, you need to let the church actually take their, both angles are being talked about from the Bible. So the prophetic message is actually being risen up to go, Hey, there's a better way of doing humanity. There's a better way to be human. There's a better way of doing sexuality in both these areas. And maybe you should actually listen to the scriptural idea versus picking and choosing based on what you already, your pre, your already adopted worldview. You're going to listen to Christianity's seeming prophetic voice on this but, oh, it's all old and just conservative and 2,000 years old on this. The Bible comes out and goes, no, actually, you got a better way of being human in both regards. I think here's here's what, what I want the book to basically capture. Years ago, a guy named Brian Walsh wrote a book called Subversive Christianity. And he said, one of the things that we get into uh, culturally is we either become, we offer pessimism or optimism. So oftentimes um, he says, you know, uh, conservatives will have kind of this pessimistic outlook on life. And and as a, as a voice, they'll be pessimistic. The world is bad. Everyone's awful. We need to just crawl into a hole and be scared. And then liberals have this, yeah, humankind is great. We're all going to build utopia here on earth. We'll build it. We'll just work hard enough and help everybody and everybody will be great. And he said the job of the church, like Isaiah, like Ezekiel, like Jeremiah, like Daniel, is to not fall into pessimism or optimism, but to offer prophetic critique and prophetic hope where we critique the cultural paradigms and ideas, but we don't leave it there. Uh, you know, like a lot of documentary filmmaking, you watch a lot of documentaries, they're great at prophetic critique. They'll rip down a whole idea, but they don't offer what the prophets offered, which is prophetic hope. This is the better, this is the way forward. This is the better way. And that's what I hope the book does, is it does do a critique, but it offers hope. A very practical pastoral, hey, here's how to not only have a better sex life in your own life, but here's how to have that that life then you know have this symbolic beautiful gesture have the, it's almost like your marriage is a sermon to the world about contentment in Jesus and contentment in this one spouse that you become one flesh with in covenant never to turn to anyone else um and 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 it's it's about man so this is what i find fulfillment in not my sexuality uh, even though it's a really important part of myself, it's not a God to me. And that that is how we subvert um, the empire that we live in. So that's the part, the whole point of the book is to try to be really practical, but to ultimately offer prophetic critique and prophetic hope and to be a voice in the conversation. So hopefully it is helpful to you. 
Uh, read it. Thanks, Jeremy, for uh, for the time of just kind of digging into yeah. these questions right. and really putting a voice to the reader. Uh, that's that's what we hope to accomplish here. Uh, you can get the book for absolutely free at www.pastormarkclark.com, uh, and you just uh, give the info and you get on a list, and we send you the book immediately for download. And uh, read it on your Kindle, read it on your iPad, and hopefully. Uh, Hopefully it's helpful to you in your marriages, uh, in your thinking, in your life, and uh, and to friends and family. Uh, that's the that's the real heart behind the book. So hopefully uh, you will enjoy it. Uh, PastorMarkClark.com, and it's called Radical Sex. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Village Church Podcast Show. You can find out more about Village Church, including ways to support the ministry, at ThisIsVillageChurch.com.